Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedeckes. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend your faith. Now, in the Old Testament, we read of moral conundrums. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedeckes. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend your faith. Here's the big idea from today's episode. The Bible and the God who has revealed himself in its pages provides the only adequate basis for morality. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you why that is and then show you how to get the conversation back around to the gospel when you're faced with a particular objection. So let's talk about this objection. Now, often when engaging in conversation with skeptics, you'll hear the argument that the God of the Bible is immoral, especially in the Old Testament. Or you'll hear that the uh, that current positions that Christians hold on social issues such as homosexuality, um, also known as gay rights or LGBTQ issues, or abortion, uh, aka a woman's right to choose, are backward and downright wrong. Now, these are accusations dealing with morality. The study of morality is the study of mores, rules about right and wrong. To answer questions about morality is to deal with ethical obligations and proscriptions, um, rules about right or wrong thought and action. So we're talking about what people should and should not do. The question of developing a Christian view of morality is bound up with the question of other fields of study, including axiology, which is the study of values, and aesthetics. Aesthetics is the study of judgments of beauty. Now, these three, morality, axiology, and aesthetics, are all concerned with the question of goodness. And the real question is whether such a thing as absolute goodness truly exists. And um, that's the real question. Is there a reference point for goodness by which all judgment of goodness or badness are themselves to be judged. After we see that there is, in fact, an absolute standard of goodness, then we can ask, what are our moral duties? How do we know? In other words, how does goodness actually play itself out in real life? We can also ask, what does it mean to violate the absolute standard of goodness? What is sin? And is beauty objective or is beauty merely in the eye of the beholder? If there is an absolute standard by which we may make sense of morality, then we may also make sense of these other related fields of study, aesthetics and axiology. So we're going to focus on goodness and then we're going to talk about morality. I'm not going to get very much into aesthetics and and axiology. Maybe we'll talk about that another time, but just know that the three are very bound up, very related. Now, determining the reference point for all goodness is absolutely necessary before judging any goodness or any claims about goodness at all, including claims that God is immoral. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. It's also necessary for judging 
um, any, any claims about morality or immorality. So this is why the skilled apologist will often ask a very simple question when confronted with the objection that God is somehow immoral. Immoral by what standard? God is the basis for morality. See, morality cannot be subjective. If it were, we would only be talking about preferences, not morality. There would only be what is and what I prefer. Uh, for example, you know, this, the existence of my preference is not itself a, an obligation. It's just a statement about what is. I have this preference. Um, I've got my preference. You've got your preference. But there is no bridge between them, no um, ceiling above them, no rule that governs the two of them. There's no scale upon which to weigh them and ultimately no way to judge between your preference and my preference. So morality must be objective, which is to say that it must be absolute. If we're going to talk about anything beyond preferences, then we must be talking about morality as being absolute. Now, absolute morality requires a basis in an absolute prime reality. Now we're talking about metaphysics. The prime reality must be absolute as well as being personal. This is because moral duties, moral obligations are laws, and laws require a lawgiver. An impersonal force like gravity cannot give laws. Now, we can come up with a law of gravity, which is nothing more than an observation of how gravity works, but there is no ethical obligation related to um, something like gravity. You might say, well, yes, sure there is. Because the law of gravity is a thing, you should not jump off a building. But no, jumping off a building, uh, prescription, proscription on jumping off a building is, uh, if it is an ethical ought, if it is an obligation, it's because it's wrong to hurt yourself. Do you see the difference? Gra that's not coming from gravity. That's coming from somewhere else. Now, um, a lawgiver cannot be an impersonal force like gravity. It can't be an abstract object like the number four. Um, it also can't get, explain itself like the, the moral obligation, you shall not murder. That's an abstraction, but it can't explain itself. It can't speak itself. So, uh, so the lawgiver must be personal. It must be someone who can make the pronouncement. This is how things ought to be. Absolute, unchanging laws require an absolute and unchanging lawgiver. So if morality is to be absolute and unchanging, we need a lawgiver who is absolute and unchanging. Certain non-biblical worldviews, which present a concept of God that is, for example, Unitarian, meaning absolute oneness, could perhaps account for an absolute unchanging law, but they would only apply to an individual person in his relationship to himself, not in relationship to others, because uh, such a God, such a prime reality, would have nothing to say to interpersonal relationships, because in his being, in its being, it would not be interpersonal, and so it couldn't be the metaphysical basis for interpersonal law, including moral law. Yet, moral principles do not just deal with individuals and their relationships with themselves, but they also govern relationships between persons, between individuals. Much of morality covers how people ought to treat one another. In the study of morality, we are concerned not merely with unity, but also with diversity. We are concerned with how individuals ought to treat one another in their relationships and their interactions with each other. You shall not murder is a great example of this. It's a, it's a law that restricts one's interaction with someone else. So this is a question not merely of absolute unity, but of diversity and interpersonal relationships as well.
In order to account for the existence of absolute moral standards that govern interpersonal relationships, the prime reality in which they are grounded must be absolute, personal, and interpersonal. One of the core doctrines of Christian theism is that God is triune. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three divine persons, perfectly united in absolute loving harmony. And this has been the nature of God since literally forever. This means that God is interpersonal in his very being. God is relational within himself. As it turns out, this interpersonal attribute that God has is completely essential for grounding morality, which deals both with our obligations toward God and our obligations toward one another as fellow persons made as we are in God's image. So there must be an absolute uh, a relational attribute to God if God's going to be the grounding of morality, or else any moral standards for interpersonal relationships would merely be arbitrary. So if the Muslim God declares, you know, you shall not murder, that's not rooted in himself as part of who he is. He's just coming up with that arbitrarily. You see, because there was there was no morality governing um, Allah's interaction with anyone else before he created because there was no one else for him to interact with. This is the problem that Unitarian religions like Judaism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, etc. face. Prior to their conception of God creating, there would have been no interpersonal relationships at all. I realize it probably sounds like I'm beating a dead horse here, but it's very important to talk about nowadays because there are many people who believe that we Christians worship the same God as Muslims and as uh, the Jewish religion, when in reality, our concept of God is very different. And the biblical concept of God, and when I say biblical, I mean Old and New Testament, um, although it might share much in common with these non-Christian worldviews, conceptions of God, there are there the uh, in insofar as they miss the triune nature of God, they are missing something that is absolutely essential to grounding morality as it must be ground uh, grounded. See, any moral requirements of a Unitarian God would have been uh, would have been decrees. Um, that were creations of his mind, but would not have been rooted in his own character, in his relational nature, which would have had to have been that way since before creating the world. Because before God created the world, if if Allah is God, or if uh, the the um, uh, Unitarian monotheistic conceptions of God is true, God before creating had no relationships. And so God would have had to have been dependent on his creation in order to have the attribute of being interpersonal. You see how that's a problem. God cannot be dependent on his creation for something that's essential to his being. Therefore, it wouldn't be essential to his being. Therefore, God is not the grounding of these things, essentially, of, of interpersonal morality. It follows that for absolute interpersonal moral standards to be absolute, they must be rooted in a prime reality, God, because God is prime reality, God is ultimately real, who is infinite without division, unbroken oneness, and yet diverse and personal within himself, such that the divine persons who are one God, unbroken and undivided, enjoy communion between themselves that is perfectly loving and perfectly moral. God's nature, as revealed in scripture, is such a prime reality. So the God of the Bible, this is what this is what I'm getting at here. This is what all this boils down to. The God of the Bible is the necessary and sufficient grounding for morality as we uh, uh, as as it as it must be grounded 
It must be universal. It must deal with interpersonal relationships. It must be absolute. Only the God of the Bible could possibly account for that kind of morality, morality as it is. Because God is triune and God is personal. God is interpersonal. God is one. God is triune. On the biblical view, given the biblical view of of God, the God who grounds reality, who is the basis for reality, who is ultimately real. In other words, all things consist in him. He created everything. The God who grounds reality is interpersonal and perfectly loving. And that means perfectly moral within himself. So when God commands us to love, he's commanding us to do what he's been doing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, since forever. Okay, do you see? Morality is based in God's very nature. He's not just coming up with these laws uh, arbitrarily. Only biblical Christian theism has this view of God. So someone might say, well, sure, but any religion with that kind of concept of God uh, could be the necessary grounding for morality. Well, even, you know, even if you want to go that route, there's only one religion that has such a view of God, where God is triune, um, meaning he's, he's united, he's one and he's three, he's, he's, he's uh, unity and diversity, um, and he's absolute and he's personal. Only Christianity even makes that claim about God. And therefore, only Christianity provides an adequate basis for morality, objective universal laws governing interpersonal relationships and interactions. If it sounds like I'm repeating myself, I'm trying to phrase this in as many ways as I can to drive this point home because it's so important to see only the biblical concept of God accounts for morality as as we need it. Morality that governs interpersonal relationships that doesn't change. You shall not murder is not an arbitrary command. It's not going to be here today, gone tomorrow. It didn't. It wasn't just made up out of whole cloth. It's rooted in something that is solid. It's rooted in something that is unchanging, and that's the nature of God. There are many worldviews and religions and philosophies in the world, yet only one worldview has such a concept of God. That is biblical Christianity. I want to make that very, very clear. As Francis Schaeffer has said, the Christian answer is not merely a good answer. It is the only answer. Only biblical Christianity provides the basis for absolute interpersonal objective morality. So God's nature is the standard for morality. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have known and loved one another perfectly forever in perfect infinite oneness. So it makes sense when scripture says that God is love. 1 John 4, 8. His very nature is love. His loving nature is the basis for how the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another, and it forms the basis for his moral commands to us, his creatures. Therefore, God's moral commands are not arbitrary, nor does he appeal to some standard beyond himself. The Greek philosopher Plato wrestled with this because he only knew the gods of mythology. And yet, God is not like those gods. So Plato wanted to know if the gods had to appeal to a standard higher than themselves, or if they had to just create moral laws arbitrarily. But what Plato didn't have, which is what we have, which Plato tried to get to with his concept of the good, but Plato didn't know about the triune God. So we are actually, um, the great philosopher Plato is lower than we are in his understanding of what morality is grounded in. All right, now, God's nature is the very definition of goodness. God is magnificent. He is glorious. He is imminently praiseworthy. And he commands that his creatures live by his glorious standards. See Mark chapter 10, 
verse 18. God's goodness was reflected in his creation as he originally created it. He made all things good. Genesis 1.31. What does it mean that he made all things good? He made all things exactly as he wanted them to be. And because he is good, then everything he wants is good. And when he created the world, how he wanted the world to be, he made the world good. So God, the infinite tripersonal relational God who is love, is perfectly moral. He is infinitely valuable. He is gloriously beautiful. So all the fields of study that are related to goodness, morality, axiology, um, aesthetics, they all find their basis and their ultimate reference point in him. Things are good. Things are valuable. Things are beautiful insofar as they are like God, who is all good, who is valuable, who is beautiful to the infinite degree. So God's, now how do we know what God requires, morally speaking? Well, God's revelation makes his moral laws accessible to us. So remember that God's nature is personal, infinite, and diverse within himself. This provides the basis for absolute morality. And because he is personal, God has a will. Because he is infinite, his will applies to all people. And that includes all people everywhere at all times. Because he is tripersonal, it's in his nature to communicate. Did you ever think about that? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been able to communicate with one another since forever. So God's nature is one who communicates. And he has revealed our moral obligations. He has communicated them to us both in creation, but specifically and explicitly and clearly in his word, the Bible. God's creation communicates his glory, according to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And this is true to the extent that man has enough knowledge about God in order to glorify him and to give him thanks. And yet, uh, and, and therefore we are without excuse, without excuse if we fail to do so. Um, but according to Romans 1, 18 through 24, that is exactly what we do. We do fail to do so. Failing uh, even to fulfill this basic requirement, actually, man goes on to sin in various ways throughout life. The Bible says that God created man upright, but he has gone astray. He sought out his own ways. Uh, we fall short of God's glorious standard in every area of life. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, although man was originally created good, the first man sinned and all his children that's us, have been sinning ever since, suppressing what we know to be true about God from what we see in the world um, and from our moral sense within, our conscience, more about which later. However, the moral sense, the conscience does remain. The Bible says that the works of the law are written on the hearts of all people and their competing thoughts um, either accuse or even excuse them, according to Romans 2.15. Now, the second way that God communicates his absolute moral standards to us, apart from through creation, is by the Bible. The Bible teaches that creation's greatest purpose is to praise God. Psalm 148 verses 1 through 14 talk about this. And man's highest moral duty is to love God, Matthew 22, verse 38, and John 14, 15, followed by the command to love one's neighbor as oneself. Matthew 22, verses 38 through 39. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, this is what he said. Now, in the Old Testament, we read of God's moral laws in his covenant with the national people of Israel, the ethnic nation of Israel, which, which old covenant was established through Moses. 
in the new covenant, we have a new lawgiver, the greater Moses, the one who actually made Moses and gave Moses his law, but now gives us a new law in the new covenant, and that is Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments, as part of the Old Covenant, were a baseline summary for the nation of Israel. And Jesus Christ deepened and expanded God's moral teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through uh, which pertains to the New Covenant and elsewhere. The teachings of Christ are impossible to fulfill in man's natural sinful condition, which is bleak indeed. But because God is good, he must give sin what it deserves. And we're going to see that he does exactly that in a few minutes. Now let's look at a quick objection. What about somebody who says, no, morality doesn't need to be absolute. It doesn't need to be objective. I recently listened to a debate on the Unbelievable program with Justin Brierley based out of London, which is an awesome show. If you like this uh, podcast, you'll certainly like that one. Um, and atheist Matt Dillahunty was uh, positing that morality really boiled down to a kind of pragmatism. That is, if you want outcome A, you ought to do action B. Now, the implication here is that doing B is the best way to bring about A. However, this is very insufficient as, as a discussion about morality, and here's why. At the most basic level, this objection comes down to a kind of word game. You know, we're not really talking about obligation here. We're not really talking about ought. We're not really talking about morality. Rather, we're simply talking about a statement of what action presumably leads to a particular outcome or conclusion. It's, it's a little bit like saying, you know, the, the idea is you say, well, if you want A, do B. But really, that's just another way of saying if you do B, A will result. Another example of this would be if you drop this bowling ball, it will hit the ground. So you could switch that around and say, if you want to hit the ground with the bowling ball, drop it. Okay, but that doesn't really carry any ethical or moral obligation, any oughtness to it. We're not really talking about moral obligations at all. Furthermore, there's no way to judge between the, the uh, relative um, uh, ethical is, uh, ethicality or morality of um, uh, dropping the ball on someone's foot or not. You know, uh, There's no way to get an, an obligation. All you can say is, well, if you want to hurt someone, drop this on their foot. But that doesn't tell us about the morality of your desire to hurt that person. Um, but then the, the skeptic objects and says, no, a person actually is obligated to take an action that is aimed at bringing about his desired outcome. So, in other words, um, no, you are obligated to drop the bowling ball if you want the bowling ball to hit the ground. If that's what you want, you are obligated to do it, to take the action that is best suited to that outcome. And um, here's the thing. What this assumes is that there, that um, integrity between a person's desires and a person's actions is a good thing. If I want something to happen, it's a good thing that I pursue it. In other words, uh, I'm really talking about integrity. That's what this is really getting at. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. And actually, we can recognize this to be true, can't we? Someone who says that they desire something, but uh, practices actions that will never lead to that conclusion, we would call that person foolish or hypocritical. So let's say a guy says he wants to get in shape, all right? Let's say I say I want to get in shape, but then I stay up every uh, uh, late every night watching Netflix, pounding ice cream, Rocky Road, please, that's my favorite, and salami, all right? I, that, I would be foolish and hypocritical. Right, and that's bad. That's that's a bad thing to be foolish and hypocritical. But the idea of being foolish and hypocritical, the idea of that being bad, the idea of not being hypocritical, being good, this is a Christian idea that's taught in Scripture. It's the Bible that condemns folly and hypocrisy all throughout Scripture. But the problem is you can't get there 
from skepticism. Skepticism or, or atheism provides no basis either for the existence of moral laws because there's no lawgiver, nor an epistemological basis, a basis for coming to know about moral obligations because there's no lawgiver speaking to us about them. Do you see? So the atheist really has painted himself into a corner here. He hasn't really solved the problem at all by saying, no, it's just about pragmatism because that doesn't tell us the about the, the ethics of um, any particular outcome that you may want to pursue. And it doesn't tell us about why it's good to have integrity and not be a hypocrite. You have to import Christian assumptions in order to make sense, even of a pragmatic form of morality. So it doesn't work. Um, so then, Let's talk about three components to morality, and then I want to talk about man's problem and the solution to it, and we're going to wrap this up. Um, three components to morality. Moral thought and action then, moral thought and action then, is thought and action that is in accordance with God's nature, God's good nature, as he has revealed it in his word. And uh, it's also in accordance with love towards his creation. So God's nature and love, those are the two components so far, and love towards his creation in general, okay, like not mistreating animals, not polluting the earth, for example, but especially love toward other image bearers, uh, human beings bearing the image of God. Because benevolence toward other image bearers is as close as we can get to, to benevolence toward God in terms of dealing with his creation. Okay, so love God, love your neighbor. When I'm loving my neighbor, um, I'm expressing love towards someone made in the image of God. And by proxy, it's as if I'm loving God. Do you, you understand? All right. So the third component then is doing and thinking what is in accordance with conscience. We, now, I haven't talked much about conscience, but I alluded to it earlier a little bit. But um, this is the corollary to our being made in God's image. See, God has given us a conscience. Remember in Romans 2, when Paul talks about the work of the law being written on our hearts, he also states that our conscience bears witness to what is right. And so God has given us a conscience as an internal guide. But um, furthermore, we Christians are not to violate our conscience, according to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 10. And our consciences, though, are marred by sin. So this gives us a problem because the conclusions of our conscience must be judged by Scripture, which is perfect, because our conscience is no longer an infallible guide ever since sin was introduced into the world. Of course, the sad reality is that there is not a person on earth alive who has ever perfectly obeyed his conscience, who has ever perfectly upheld God's standard of love, or who has ever perfectly obeyed God's express moral commands in his word. You see, man, mankind, we are an immoral creature by nature. By nature, we've inherited a sinful nature. We're sinners. We sin because we're sinners, and we're sinners because we sin. And as a result, we have earned sin's wages. Now, let's talk about immoral man's predicament. Now, the wages of sin, the Bible teaches, is death, according to Romans 6.23. Man's predicament, then, is that by living life in disobedience to God, he is choosing death. The disconnect between God's perfectly good nature and law and man's current immoral state is so deep, so vast of a chasm that it would be completely impossible for man to traverse that chasm nor is man even willing to in his sinful state, uh, and in order to be restored to a right relationship with God apart from divine intervention. In other words, apart from God taking action. 
So man is in the predicament of having an inner moral sense, which drives him to desire moral goodness, while at the same time being morally corrupt and incapable in his very nature of choosing the good and pleasing God. Romans 8, 8 talks about that. So here is God's moral solution. Because God's character is perfectly good. The only way that God, if he wanted to, could reconcile immoral mankind to himself would be by doing so in such a way that maintains his righteous standard. So in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see exactly how God does this. He has Jesus, who is perfectly good and absolute in his nature, take on the punishment for man's moral deficiencies and disobedience. God imputes Christ with our sin. Our sin is credited to Christ. Christ died with taking on the wages of sin, which is now fair because of the sin credited to him, even though he himself never actually committed a sin. And God's righteous or just moral standard is upheld. Then Christ was buried and Christ rose. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. Isn't that amazing? And because he had already paid the penalty for sin, there is now no more condemnation for that sin. This is why the Bible contains these two passages, Romans 3.23, uh, 3.25-26 rather, and Romans 8.1-2. Romans 3.25-26 and 26 says this, God presented him that's Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice. There's other ways of translating that, but that's the gist of it. In his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be, get this, righteous. He would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God upholds his moral standard and is still able to declare us moral. Amazing. And Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this, therefore, there is now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Can I get an amen? You see, God perfectly maintained his moral standard while taking care of the moral requirement that was necessitated by our immorality. God is so moral, he has to punish sin. And he did that by punishing Jesus on the cross. And so today, anyone who repents, who turns from immorality and trusts in Jesus will be justified, will be declared moral on the basis of Christ and Christ's moral perfection. Therefore, instead of God being immoral in Scripture, remember that was our objection, God's immoral in Scripture, quite the opposite is true. He is the epitome of morality and the very standard by which, by which one must appeal to uh, the very standard one must appeal to in order to judge any claims of morality or immorality at all. The accusation of God's immorality turns out to be incredibly uh, fallacious and um, ultimately uh, it's, it's refuted. It's done away with. When you encounter it, when you encounter that objection, just remember that the Christian view of morality is rooted in God's character and a discussion of God's morality naturally leads to a presentation of the good news of the gospel. That's how you get 
around to the presentation of the gospel because that's where we want to get to. Um, that's where we want to take the conversation. So discussing morality ultimately is just a great means to that end. So thank you for listening. And if you haven't done so yet, please drop what you're doing and leave us a five-star rating and write us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps commend our podcast to others. Um, I do this work for free. I'm supported by uh, our ministry partners. And um, if you want to support us, you can you can do that. Uh, but one of the great ways to support us is help us get the word out about this podcast. Um, if you do want to contribute through uh, becoming a prayer and financial partner with myself and my family, we are missionaries through Crew Church Movements here in Chicago. Go to give.crew.org and you can search for Joel Sedeke's or you can just type in 1018841. 1018841, that's our missionary giving number. Uh, type that in at give.crew.org. Now, you can connect with us on social media. On Twitter, we are at ThinkInst. On Facebook, we are at The Think Institute. On Instagram, at The Think Institute. And you can always drop me an email with any question or concern, conundrum, or complaint by going to The Think Institute. No thethink.institute at gmail.com. We're on all the platforms except Spotify. Listen to the podcast. Thank you for listening. And this is not goodbye. This is just a little stop on your spiritual journey. And I hope, I really hope that over the next week, you have the opportunity to put what you just heard into practice. That's all I have for you today. I've got to go pick up my kids from school. And um, until next time, I hope it made you think.